Amen. Praise the Lord. Kids, you're dismissed. Love that. Love singing together. It's just, I don't think anything that does my heart and my soul better than us all singing together in church on the Sunday morning and hearing the voices of the saints lifted up together. Uh, hearing Andy London give out a yeah when he gets really excited about something. Nothing, nothing. That's, amen. I love it. Nothing does my heart better. We need that. That's what we need. That's why we gather together each week. We talk about this in membership class of with everything, and we all live through this in some ways, but with every technology available to us to, to do this remotely, to, we could even curate our favorite worship songs and our favorite preacher and, and listen at home. And why don't we do that? It's because there's power in gathering together and lifting up our voices together and preaching God's word as we're gathered physically together. And so we need that. We, our hearts need that. Our souls need that. And I've been blessed by that this morning, and I'm excited to turn to God's Word to see what He has for us. What else would we want, right? God's given us His whole Word. How could we want anything else? Why would you want anything else that I could give you? Any opinion I have, any thought that I have, that's nothing compared to God's Word. It's His Word. And so we're going to turn there this morning together. So please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 10. We're going to be in chapters 10 through 12 this morning. We're covering three chapters. We're kind of on the home stretch a little bit of Judges. And uh, we have August 1st is going to be our last week in Judges. And then after that, we're going, to do, uh, we're going to do Missions Month. And we're going to spend four weeks talking about God's Word going out to the nations and the importance of that. The hope of the nations is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about that in the month of August and about what our church's responsibility is. And I am super fired up about that. <coughs> but but I'm equally fired up about being in Judges this morning. And so hopefully you've turned there with me to chapter 10. That's where we'll be, be starting. And there's a lot to get into this morning. So please bow your heads with me and we'll pray. <clears throat> God, we need your help. Without your spirit, this is meaningless, God. And so we just invite your spirit to come in this place. We know that you are here indwelling the believers. Rock Prairie Church is the bride of Christ. The church universal is the bride of Christ, made up of individual churches. And that is a privilege beyond what we can even put words to, God, to be the bride of Christ, flawed as we are, ugly as we can be. In Christ, we are made whole, we are made new, we are righteous in your sight because of the blood of the Lamb. So we thank you, God, and we pray that as we look to your word, our only source of wisdom, our only source of guidance, our only source of truth, God, that you would help us apply it to our lives, see areas that we are falling short of being the bride that you want us to be, Lord, and make us more like Jesus. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, tells a story of uh, right, what has happened right after David commits his big sin. So David has, at this point, uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, gotten her pregnant, and then to cover it all up, he arranged for Bathsheba's husband Uriah to be killed on the front lines of battle. It's really bad, right? And uh, David has done this. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan goes to David to confront him about it. But he doesn't just 
tell him what he did. He doesn't just confront him and yell at him for what he's done. He, he tells a parable, tells a story. He says, essentially, there's a rich man and a poor man. Rich man had a bunch of sheep. Poor man only had one sheep. The rich man was throwing a party, and he took the poor man's sheep and killed it and used it for his party. And David uh, gets indignant and enraged, as you would expect here in this story. How could this man who had so many sheep do this to this poor, innocent man? That man deserves to die, David says. And then Nathan, one of the great comebacks in Scripture, looks David right in the eye and says, You are that man. That's you. You're the one who did that. And the realization floods David's heart, and he understands his sin. He realizes what he's done, and he repents. And I tell that story because our passage this morning in Judges 10 to 12 tells the story of Jephthah. I'm going to really labor to say Jephthah. P-H-T-H is just a killer letter combination. So anyways, I'm going to do my best. But it tells the story of Jephthah. And uh, Jephthah does some pretty bad things. There's just bad things that happen in our story. And it's super easy for us to look at this story like David did of the parable and say, what a terrible guy Jephthah was. He deserves to die. And uh, my experience in reading this story and studying this story throughout the week is I had that same kind of Nathan experience in my own heart. When I realize I am that man. I struggle with a lot of the things that go on behind the surface and the heart level that Jephthah struggles with. Now, Jephthah, hopefully none of us are struggling with things like uh, child sacrifice, right? That's not really, so, or like human sacrifice. That's not really something that most of us are struggling with. If you are, we've got to really um, need to have a talk quickly. But, um, but the heart issues behind it are the things that are convicting us. And so as we read this story, I'm going to ask that instead of kind of coming at it from a distance and just kind of looking at these terrible things that happen and say, how could they? I'm praying, I'm asking the Lord that he helps us have that same realization and shows us where, in fact, you are that man. You are that woman. You struggle with these very same things. And so that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to ask four questions as we go. We're going to just kind of go through the story like we have been in Judges and learn what is actually the facts of it. But as we go, I'm going to ask us four questions along the way, four questions that are going to reveal what's going on in your heart. If you're a note taker, it'd be great things to write those questions down and meditate on those questions throughout the week and ask the Lord to show you where, in fact, you are falling short in these areas. So that's where we're heading this morning as we look at the story of Jephthah. You guys ready to go? All right. Well, our story begins in the same place that it always begins in Judges, bless you, with Israel falling back into sin. Rebel, repent, repeat. Rebel, repent, repeat. It's a cycle. And Israel has once again fallen back into sin, except this time it's really bad. So look with me. We're going to pick up in verse 6. It says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They served all the gods, like all of them. They were on like a false god bender, like every single false god that would have been like available to them within their sight. Like, I'll worship that one. I'll worship that one. Gods of the Philistines, that looks good. Gods of the Ammonites, I'll take some of those. Gods of the Asheroth and the Baals, and let's just, hey, every single false god, let, if there's any idol out there, I'm going to worship it, is what Israel was doing. This is really bad. Who do they not serve? 
the Lord, the one true God, the only true God, the one who had been faithful to them over and over and over again. So Israel's on this false god bender, and what do you think happened? Punishment. It's like it always does does in Judges. God sold his people into the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines. I know these names can all kind of run together after a while, but Ammonites and Philistines, those are the two people that are going to be oppressing Israel. And we're going to deal with the Ammonites this week, and then the Philistines we're going to jump into next week when we start studying the story of Samson. And the Philistines are actually going to oppress Israel for many, many, many years. But this this week we're dealing with the Ammonites. So they were oppressing Israel for 18 years, our text tells us, and wouldn't you know it, Israel doesn't like it. They don't like being oppressed by the Ammonites, so what do you think they do? Repent, right? Verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And this is where things start to change a little bit. Because up until now in Judges, pretty much for the most part, when the repentance happens, God hears their repentance and he raises up a judge to save them. But this time, it's a little bit different. Look at God's response to Israel in verse 11. This is what God says after they said, we've sinned against you. Verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you already? From the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Amaianites oppress you, and you cried out to me every time, and I saved you out of their hand. I've saved you plenty of times before, God says, verse 13, yet now you have forsaken me and served other gods. Here's the scary verse in this passage, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen and let them save you in the time of your distress. You like worshiping these false gods so much? Go serve them. See what they do to save you. Because I am done, God says. And I don't know about you, but this passage to me is a little bit troubling because it seems to run contrary to a lot of the things that we say and preach and sing Our sins are many, his mercy is more, right? We sing that song last week. We're going to sing it again at the end of the service. Is that true? Can you run out of God's grace? Is there a time when God says, I've saved you enough times and you keep leaving me, so I'm just going to leave you and you go ahead and deal and see if those false gods will save you, those false idols will save you, those things that you keep running to that are sinful for comfort. You see if how much comfort those things will give you in eternity because I'm done with you. Does God ever run out of grace? Because it seems like Israel has hit the bottom. We sing thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. This seems like they've found the bottom of God's grace. So what gives Well, to answer that question, we need to understand a little bit about the heart of Israel in their repentance. And we need to understand a little bit about our own hearts when we repent as well. And so this is the first question we're going to ask ourselves this morning. Are you following God or using him? Are you truly following God or are you just trying to use him for your own 
personal benefit. And I'll illustrate this. Imagine parents, if you will, let's if you're a parent of a teenager or were a parent of a teenager at one point, imagine that like things are going really rough in your house at the moment. Like thing, like it's just not going well. Like there's just always tons of arguments. There's disobedience. They're all they're, your teenagers always staying out past curfew. Like you're just like they're just yelling at you all the time. There's just clear like things are just going in a terrible place. And I say imagine because I know that wouldn't ever happen to anyone in this church, but you can picture it. Maybe you've heard stories of that happening for other people. But imagine that that's kind of the, like there's just no peace in your household, right? And then one day you come home from work and you find that your teenage son or daughter has cleaned the whole house, scrubbed the toilets, (laughs) mopped the floors, folded the laundry, everything, the whole nine yards. And then maybe even they have like a, the candlelight dinner that they've made for you, and it's like just about to come out of the oven. And you're like, oh, what's, what's going on here? And so you sit down, and, and your son or daughter says to you, Mom, Dad, like, I just want to say, I know, like, I've not been living right recently. I know I haven't been listening to your authority. I know that you know what's best for me, and yet I've just been continually doing it my own way. And I'm so sorry. And I just want you to know, like, things are going to be different starting now. Starting today, I've decided things are going to be different, Mom, Dad. And also, mom or dad, just this is unrelated, but I broke my iPhone and I need you to buy me another one. <laughs> so again, that has nothing to do with any of this, but that's just kind of like down the road. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about that after dinner or something. But right now I want you to know truly how sorry I am. You wouldn't buy it, <laughs> right? You would not be surprised that the whole thing wasn't sincere. You probably suspected that the moment you walked in the door, right? That's what's happening with Israel here. That's what's happened over and over again. They weren't just suddenly overcome with the error of worshiping false gods. They just wanted something from God. When the false gods, catch this, couldn't deliver what God could give them, or they worshiped these false gods, but when they wanted something that these false gods couldn't give them, that was when they turned to the Lord. But when God demanded something of their lives that the false gods didn't demand, and you insert your own idols or sinful patterns here. They drop God like a sack of figs. And they turn back to their idols and hoard themselves after every single idol that they could find. That's what's happening here. God knows their hearts. So does God have abundant, infinite mercy? Yes. Is God naive and able to be taken advantage of? No. No. He can't be manipulated like that. He's not just there to be your little sidekick when you need him and discarded when you don't. I was talking to Sam Friend earlier this week, and we were both trying to think of a certain town in Michigan that both of us had been to, and neither of us could think of it, and it was driving us both crazy. And then finally, he's like, I got to look it up. And he pulled out his phone and looked it up and says, Coldwater. Like, yep, that's the town that we're both thinking of. And then he put his phone away, and kind of we can treat God like that sometimes, can't we, when we just uh, pull him out of our pocket when we need something and then put him right back when we don't. And that is not, church, how we're called to live with God. That's not how we're called to respond to God. He's not just this magic vending machine in the sky who's going to spit out what you want if you just learn to press the right buttons. He's not going to be manipulated that way. We're called to follow him. Don't use God 
It's a temptation. I mean, how often in my own life does my prayer life like really ramp up when I just like need something, want something? A lot. It does. Probably true for you as well. But God is not going to be a God who's manipulated and take advantage of and use. He's a God who's to be worshipped and served and followed with your whole life. And when you repent, when you truly repent, when you truly understand the weight of your sin against a holy God, you will never run out of his forgiveness and grace and mercy. You will never find the bottom. But if you're going to treat God for your whole life just like somebody who you're just going to use and manipulate, don't be surprised when you find the judgment of God waiting for you. And that's what Israel found when they repented this time. And when they heard God's response, they were pretty rightly freaked out by that. I'm sure they realized, oh no, we've really done it now. We've really stepped in it. So what did they do? They cried out to God again. They said, God, we promise we're going to put away all these idols. We're only going to worship you. We promise. In verse 16, God's response is a little different. It says, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. But it's interesting. Look what it says. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. So it doesn't say that he even bought it. Like, we, don't, we still don't even really know, like, was their repentance genuine or not? We don't know. But God, even in this, in his, he had compassion on them, and he became impatient over their misery. He couldn't stand to see them miserable anymore. And so that's where we're at in chapter 11. And that's when we are introduced to Jephthah who would be the deliverer of Israel. We've got to know some things about Jephthah. The first thing we need to know is that he had a pretty rough upbringing, Jephthah did. He, uh, his dad's name was Gilead, and his dad, one uh, evening, went and visited a prostitute and got that prostitute pregnant, and that prostitute was Jephthah's mom. And so Jephthah, for his entire life, growing up with these half-brothers, was just the illegitimate child. And once his brothers got old enough to start thinking about their inheritance and what was coming their way, they started to realize, you know, we don't want this little illegitimate half-brother to be a part of our inheritance and to take what's rightfully ours. And so they kicked him out. They kicked him out. And uh, verse 3 tells us what happened next. Verse 3, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. I love Here we have those worthless fellows again. That just always cracks me up every time I see it. And I just love, like, uh, it's just the easiest application in Scripture. Don't be a worthless fellow. Don't be, uh, don't be, I like to think about these guys who are like, they're like calling their mom, Hey mom, I made it in the Bible. Oh really, what, what passage are you in? Don't worry about it, Mom, but I'm in there. <laughs> Worthless fellows. So Jephthah has surrounded himself with these worthless dudes, and that never ends well. But even though he had this shady background, even though he surrounded himself with these shady characters, he did have a stellar reputation as a mighty warrior. So that's Jephthah. He's got a troubled background, and he's surrounded with some bad people, but he has a really great reputation as being a mighty warrior. And of all the people in Gilead, he's the one who the, who the elders think that will be able to save them, to lead them over the Ammonites. And so they come to him, and they ask him, Hey, will you please deliver us? Help lead us to fight the Ammonites. And what's interesting here is that his response is basically the same response as God's response to Israel earlier. They come to him and say, save us. And he says, oh, now you want me to save you? 
You kicked me out before. You didn't have any use for me. But now that there's something that I can give you, now you want me to save you? No way, he says. But they plead with him again, please, you're the one. You're the one that God is calling to lead us. We want you to be our leader. And so eventually he agrees. And so Jephthah is going to be the man, troubled background as he has, he's going to be the man to lead Israel. And the first thing he does is he calls a diplomatic meeting with the king of the Ammonites. He actually, we see a lot of, he has really great diplomacy skills here. And so he calls a meeting and the king of the Ammonites is basically like, yo, Israel stole all our land. Like, what's up with that? And Jephthah's like, no, we didn't steal all your land. And he goes through the whole entire history of Israel and explains exactly why he didn't, they didn't actually steal their land. Land and, and, and it doesn't end with any sort of agreement, though. As diplomatic as he's being, they aren't ending on the same page, and so they're going to go to battle. So Jephthah is going to lead Israel into battle over the Ammonites. And when Jephthah's talking to this king, he, like, he talks a big game. He's really confident. He's really sure that God is going to be victorious when he's talking to this king. Outwardly, he's putting up a big presence and saying, our God is going to be victorious. But inwardly, that same confidence does not exist. He's extremely insecure, and he's scared about what's going to happen. And so rather than trusting the Lord to help him fight the battle... He decides he needs to strike up this little deal with God. And look at verse 30. Look at what he says. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That brings us to our next question, which is simply, Are you trusting God? Or are you negotiating with him? Are you trusting God? Or are you negotiating with him? Jephthah's vow here, his promise, he says, God, if you will deliver us in this battle, if we win, God, then I will give you a burnt offering. I'll give you a sacrifice. Whatever comes out of my house, I promise I'll give it to you, God. But you have to just give me this victory first. And if you do that, God, then I will give you a sacrifice. And that was not necessary for him to do that. Because God had already promised the victory to him. But, is, but Jephthah didn't believe it. He didn't believe it, not deep down. If he believed it, he wouldn't have felt it was necessary to make this bargain with God. And church, how often do we do the very same thing? How often do we bargain with God? God you just give me this raise at work, I promise I'll start tithing, God. Like, if you can just give me this, I promise. Like, I'll, I'll even give 15%. I'll give more than 10%, God. But, like, yeah, I need you to give me this first. And if you do that, then I will start do tithing. Or, God, if you just heal me from this sickness that I have right now that I just can't seem to shake, like, I promise I'll turn my life around. Or, God, like, if you help me get, like, I know I lied. I know I shouldn't have done it. But if you help me get away with this one, God, I promise I'll never do it again. I know I shouldn't have taken this shortcut, God, and I know I'm in trouble for it right now, but just help me through this. Just make the consequences go away. And when you do that, God, that's when I'm going to turn my life around. I promise never, ever to do that again. Negotiate with God sometimes. But God is not a God to be 
taken advantage of, and he's not a God to be negotiated with. When we negotiated with God, when we negotiate with God, it shows we don't believe that He has our best interests at heart anyway. And plus, what are we going to give God that He doesn't have already? As if somehow God needs something from us. And so the way we relate to God is that if God gives us this, we'll give Him that. As if there's anything that God needs that He doesn't already have. Don't negotiate with God. I think this is a pretty common way even for people who maybe don't know the Lord yet or who are just starting to come to terms with who God is. They think it's our natural human inclination to think, well, I need to give God something or promise God something. Like if God's really going to bless me in this way, then I better promise him all of these things. But that's not how the gospel works. It's not an exchange of goods. The only exchange is that our sinfulness is taken from us and Christ's righteousness is given to us. That's the negotiation that takes place. So don't think that you need to negotiate with God before you are accepted, before he will bless you, before he will have your best interests at heart. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he's already paid all of it at the cross. Don't negotiate with God. That's how I want to live. I don't want to negotiate with God to try to get him to bless me in this life. I want to trust him. How much differently would I live if I just trusted just 100, just on a base level, just all of myself to him? Not 50%, 75%, 99%, all of it. If I just put all of myself on the altar and I said, Lord, I am yours completely. Just use me as you will. Whatever blessings I receive in this life, whatever curses I receive in this life, it doesn't matter because it's all worth it in the life to come. And that's how Marilyn lived her life in many ways. She wasn't concerned just with the blessings of this life primarily. And again, it's not to deify her and say that she's perfect, but it's, she was certainly an example in many ways of that to many of us. We all need to live that way. We're trusting God completely with everything that we have. And if I'm blessed now, great. And if the blessings don't come in this life, that's okay. Because what's coming is so much greater. Don't negotiate with God. Trust him. Trust that he has your best interests at heart. Moving on in the story. It's interesting to me here is that uh, we always talk about when, whenever you want to focus on the detail that the author gives you, when the, when, especially in these ancient Hebrew literature, when, there's no detail that's given accidentally for no reason. So when you have detail, that's where you really want to focus in. And we have no detail about what happens in the battle. We just hear basically that Israel's victorious and they win. But the detail all comes with what happens as a fallout from this vow that Jephthah made. So look at verse 34. We'll see what happens. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah after they won. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. 
and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. It realizes that that promise of a sacrifice that he made, that whatever came out of his house first, he realizes that he's going to have to sacrifice his only daughter to the Lord. This is terrible. What's going on here? Well, some people, there's different ways that this has been interpreted. For Some people will say that he was expecting to make an animal sacrifice. He was expecting to make an animal sacrifice, but um, his daughter came out first and said, but uh, as I studied this, this week, I didn't come to that conclusion. I actually think that he was intending to make a human sacrifice when he said that for a couple reasons. First of all, the language when it says whatever comes out of my house, that whatever could just as easily be translated whoever comes out of my house is the first reason. And the second reason is just simply if he was planning on making an animal sacrifice, then when his daughter came out, it wouldn't have counted, right? Like it, it wouldn't have mattered. Like if you and I go fishing and I say, I'm so hungry, like next thing I catch, I'm going to grill it up. And then I catch an old shoe out of the pond. Well, I'm not bound to grill up that old shoe, right? Because I was talking about a fish. And if he was really talking about just an animal, he wouldn't be bound to sacrifice his daughter. I think, as terrible as it is, that Jephthah promised God that he would make a human sacrifice if God made him victorious in the battle. And the question is, why in the world would Jephthah think that God wanted that? Why would he think that that was pleasing to God in any way? And the answer is simple, because he was more influenced by the culture around him than by God's word. And that's the question that we need to ask ourselves as well. Are you more influenced by the culture or by God's word? See, pagan human sacrifice, as horrible as it was, was very common among the pagan religions at that time. So all these false gods that Israel's going after, human sacrifice is kind of a natural part of a lot of those pagan religions. And Jephthah was just confused. He just thought that God wanted that. He just thought that that would be something that would please God. And again, we can say, Jephthah, how could you do that? And yet, and yet, and yet, what kind of blind spots do I have in my own heart? my own life? What ways am I living my life just because this is just what happens in the culture? This is just what people do, and so that's what I'm going to do. What blind spots? What things am I missing? What things am I not seeing in God's word? I don't want to get to the end of my life and have the Lord look at me and say, why didn't you do this? Like, I told you in my word. You spent so much time over here on these things that are meaningless to me, and yet I told you in my word exactly how I wanted you to live, and you didn't even do those things at all. Why would you think that these things are pleasing to me? We all have those things. We all need to ask the Lord to show us those things, to reveal those things. Where are my blind spots? My blind spots where I'm just living, just, just going downstream in the culture rather than living according to God's word. And if we're going to live according to God's word, what's the first thing we have to do? Know God's word. We've got to know it. I mean, good grief, we get to the end of our life. We don't even know what God asks us to do. We don't even know how God asks us to live. We've got to know it first. If my input in my life is 99% just kind of the culture around me and 1% God's word, of course I'm going to have blind spots. Of course there's going to be things that I don't see. 
Are you more influenced by the culture or by God's word? If we're really going to be a light in the darkness, like really. And let me just ask you, do you want that? Do you want to be a light in the darkness? Do you want people to look at you and just know that there's something different about the way that you are living? Do you really want that? Or do you want to be able to just fit in perfectly with everything around you and have God in your pocket as well? If we really want to be a light in the darkness, if we're really going to stand out, if we're really going to make a difference for the kingdom, we're never going to do it if we're influenced just by the same thing that everyone else is. We need to be shaped by God's word, and that starts with knowing God's word. We've got to know it. We've got to know it. That's why we preach it every single week. That's why we study it. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we encourage you to be spending time in God's word every single day. It takes a lifetime. You can't just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resolve to know God's word and do it in two weeks. It takes a lifetime. But you got to know God's word if you're going to live according to his word. And Jephthah, man, what a blind spot. He thought God wanted a human sacrifice. Of course he didn't. Let's ask the Lord that he would show us the blind spots in our lives as well. All right, well, the story of Jephthah is coming to a close here. But because it's the book of Judges, uh, things have to end really, really bad before we can get out of the story of Jephthah. So what happens next is tragic. After Israel's victorious over the Ammonites, after Jephthah, uh, this tragic thing happens with his daughter, the tribe of the men of the tribe of Ephraim come to Jephthah and complain to him, and they say, "Why didn't you use us in the battle? Why didn't we wanted to help? Why didn't you use us?" This is interesting to me because this exact same thing happened in Judges chapter eight with Gideon where Gideon's successful in battle, and then Ephraim comes to him and says, why didn't you use us? They must be chronic complainers. Don't be a chronic complainer. That's another good application for all of us, right? God might be working in a way that is different than you expect him to work, different than you think he's going to work, different than you've ever seen him work before. But be on the lookout for God's work. Let's not be chronic complainers like Ephraim. But that's not the point. The point is Jephthah's reaction because in Judges 8, Gideon was able to negotiate with Ephraim and, under, and explain to them and talk very diplomatically with them and explain to them what was going on. Jephthah just, went off the, just flew off the handle. Like he just, he just had had enough. And uh, I understand it. I mean, he just had this epic battle and then he lost his daughter and he was probably feeling a little bit testy and then the Ephraim comes up to him. They don't say, we're so sorry about your daughter. They don't say, congratulations on the victory. They just say, hey, why didn't you use us in the battle? And so Jephthah freaks out and he ends up destroying the tribe of Ephraim. He kills 42,000 of them. And this is the famous Shibboleth passage in Scripture. Maybe you've been you're familiar with it or not, but basically the way, they didn't want any of these Ephraimites to get away, and so they parked themselves by a river. I think it was the Jordan River, but I don't remember. Uh, but they parked themselves there, and anytime somebody would come by, they'd try to find out if they were from Ephraim or not, and if they were, then they'd kill them. If not, they'd let them go, and so they'd say, are you from Ephraim? And they got wise to it, and they said, no, we're not. And so then they would say, okay, say Shibboleth. And I guess these Ephraimites had an accent. They couldn't say Shibboleth. And so what would come out of their mouth is Sibboleth. And when they'd say Sibboleth, they'd be like, 
that we know you're from Ephraim. It'd be like if you're trying to find out that someone's from New York, and you say, are you from New York? And they say, no. I say, okay, say coffee. And they're like, coffee. It's like, you're from New York. You can't hide that. Same kind of thing. So Jephthah goes off and kills 42,000 Ephraimites. And again, it's easy to look at Jephthah here and say, what are you doing? And I don't think any of you have killed 42,000 of your critics. I don't know if any of you have 42,000 critics. But, but, it's easy for us to have the same heart response to criticism. And so my question for you this morning is simply, do you respond to criticism like Jephthah or like Jesus. Jephthah flew off the handle. He couldn't handle it. It's interesting to me, actually, because when Jephthah was criticized by the king of the Ammonites, he responded really well by this kind of enemy of his. He responded really well. But when Jephthah was criticized by the people of Israel, that's when he couldn't take it. And I think that that kind of happens for us as well. Like when the criticism comes close to us, right? How do you respond when it's like a really close coworker, like someone you work on the job site with every single day, and you like you see all their mistakes, and they see all yours, and they criticize you, and you're like, well, what about this thing that you did last week, or all these things, you know? How do you respond when someone's close, or someone in your church, someone in your small group, they see something in your life, and they point it out to you? What's your first reaction? You looking for the truth in it, or you just see in red? And then here's the really bad one that none of you want me to go there, but I'm going to go there. What about when it's your spouse? Or kids, what about when it's your brother and sister? How do you respond? Where does your heart go when you're criticized? Just anger right away? Just looking for the flaws in the other person? How dare they criticize me when all these things are true about them? Sometimes the criticism's true, sometimes it's not, right? Some, a lot of times there's at least a kernel of truth in there. Sometimes it's just totally based in, not based in reality whatsoever. But either way, we're not called to respond like Jephthah. We're called to respond like Jesus, who was despised and rejected by men. But yet he commanded us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It's a radical thing that we're called to do as Christians Maybe that's just a very practical thing that you need to work on this week, right? When someone criticizes you before you fly off the handle, maybe you're prone to do that. When that criticism comes, just ask the Lord, God, please help me to calm down in this moment. Remember the grace that I have in Christ Jesus and to show that same grace here and to see the truth in it. I mean, you're never going to grow if you're not at least willing to look at some areas in your life that might need fixed. Sometimes that happens from criticism. Sometimes that criticism really hurts. Like I said, whether it's true or not, we're called to respond like Jesus Let's be a people who do that and respond in a Christ-like way because of the gospel, because of the grace that we've been shown in Christ, that we respond with that same grace. Those are our four questions for this week. Are you following God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or are you just using him when you need something and putting him away when you don't? Are you trusting in God? Trusting that he has your best interests at heart? Or are you negotiating with him? Trying to give him something so that he'll give you something as if you have anything to give him other than your righteousness, which is like filthy rags apart from Christ. 
Are you more influenced by the culture or by God's word? Maybe you don't know because you haven't really spent much time in God's word. Know his word and be influenced by his word, not the culture around you. And how do you respond to criticism like Jephthah or like Jesus? Church, we want to respond like Jesus. We want to live like Jesus. We want to love others like Jesus. We exist as a church because of Jesus. We're all about Jesus. And when we look to Jephthah, we see yet another deliverer who failed time and time again. May it bring our eyes to the majesty and wonder of our Savior, the deliverer who came and did not fail. He lived a perfect life so that we could live forever with him. And praise the Lord for Jesus. So let's pray church and let's ask the lord that he would apply these lessons and help us be more like jesus let's pray heavenly father god you're good you're good we thank you that you put up with us even when we do have hearts like jephthah god we thank you that your grace does not have any end that our sins are many your mercy is more Uh, omniscient and all-knowing you don't remember the wrongs that we've done that's because of Jesus so Lord help us to be a people who don't use you but follow you help us to be people who don't negotiate with you but trust you help us to be people who are not primarily influenced by our culture but by your word and help us to be a people who are willing to look at our own hearts of the ways that we fall short and we know we're sinful people we know we fall short so Lord help us when we're confronted with those things to respond in a Christ-like way because of the grace that we've been given in Jesus. We thank you for that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.